0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Sustainability, the podcast all about remediating and restoring our environment, brought to you by Newfields Environmental Consultancy. I'm your host, Richard Williams, and in this episode, I want to discuss some of the challenges that are brought about by marine oil spills, particularly those associated with on the ground sampling and analysing what the actual damage to marine ecosystems and coastal ecosystems are. Joining me in this discussion is Dave Pachalski. He's a uh, Nefos partner and senior environmental engineer. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Dave, could you um,
0: start by giving us a bit of background about yourself, please?
1: Oh, sure. I am a, uh, um, my degree is actually petrochemical engineering. Uh, I went to school at Louisiana State University. So um, ultimately, that is part of how I got involved with the Gulf project. Um, was able to work in development and uh, uh, oil field uh, exploration work for several years. But as the price of commodities dropped, I found myself in the environmental world. And so for about 30 years, I've been doing environmental work, cleanup from the other side. Uh, been very fortunate that uh, my oil experience from development and refining has paid off in the remediation world and the remediation market.
0: Now, now you from a remediation standpoint you were heavily involved within the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010 um can you let us know sort of what your, what your role in that response was please oh sure so
1: Newfields as a company first got involved with the forensic chemistry um Newfields as a group has a uh, a, a group that does uh, uh expert testimony and expert work in forensic chemistry and they were the first people to be engaged and um, uh, because of that, they needed to get, NOAA and the forensic guys needed to get samples of the oil material down in the Gulf. It is a little surprising. A lot of people have asked, of, you know, why do you take forensic samples? Obviously, you get out there and there's a big oil spill. This oil is BP's. But one of the things is this is always a litigation. Uh, natural resource damages always deal with legal in some way. And so it needs to be proven. And so that's why the uh, forensic guys were first uh, uh, hired. If you look at the Gulf, there are hundreds, probably thousands of rigs that are operating at any one time and production fields continuing to to operate out there that you wouldn't think oil that, that, again, a large oil spill, but it doesn't travel in one large plume. There's small little areas. So our involvement was to take uh, oil samples for forensic chemistry and prove that it came from. Just from BP, and that impact was BPs or impact that was by others could have been out there to so generally just characterize the area and so um, that, that was our first involvement that was our beginning in May of uh, 20, uh, 2010 after the April 20th uh,
0: uh, disaster. So. so you were pretty you were, were that within weeks of the actual uh, disaster happening what's your sort of memories of those initial weeks? How did that play out for you? It was chaos, to say the least. Uh,
1: a lot of people had uh, comparisons. One is the comparison to the boat scene of Jaws, where guys have uh, all kinds of things. It, it was it was similar to that. The one great thing about it, though, was that everyone was was focused. From everyone from from the the BP side, to give them credit. Um, uh, they they knew it was a bad thing. Everyone knew it was a bad thing. And then from the NOAA side, the state side, the local side, um, everyone just wanted it to stop. And and our goal was, even though we had different uh, um, specific tasks, everyone's goal was just whatever we could do to get it stopped and get things back to normal. And, and, and that was important. Um, uh, part of that, too, that actually helped I believe, from my experience, was uh, a VP a, had a VOO program, uh, Vessels of Opportunity, V-O-O, VOO. Um, and they hired local fishermen that were displaced by this or, or out of work because of it. And so they were the boats that were provided to us um, that, that really helped. Because these people were impacted, it gave them some money, gave them some cash, it put them to work. To us, to our advantage was it, they, they knew the area. They knew exactly what was going on. So we had GPS coordinates of where we wanted to start.
0: They knew how to get us there. So what were we when you were out in the boats, what was your major role? Were you sampling water and, and oil within the waters? Yes.
1: So, so our first work plan, and, and again, we were one of the first teams down there. When when I started, I think my first sample was someplace around May 15th, generally a month, a couple weeks after. It took a while because uh, the work plan would be written and VP... Um, promised Noah, committed to Noah, that they would pay for each work plan, but they had a chance to review them. So ours was relatively simple. Find oil, wherever the oil was, document what it was, take a sample, bring the sample back. It was oil and um, uh, some biota, that, but generally oil is what we were focused on. If it was a sheen on the surface, if it was globules on the surface, if it was tarballs, sample that and move on. And our general concept was to start with one sample every uh, mile and a half. And, and, and I laughed because didn't quite understand until getting down there, like what a Herculean path that was. It took us months to cover from Florida back to uh, uh, Louisiana, back to uh, uh, the, the other side of Terrebonne Bay.
0: What's the, you, I mean, you, you must have been working with a huge number of people down there. Um, I imagine probably quite diverse as well. What's, what's the challenges of working with and, managing a team that has to do such a, a a big, like you say, Herculean task of of taking all these samples?
1: Um there were the first and foremost, always a safety challenge. Make sure everyone knows what they're doing uh and, and doing it safely. We were working on our our very first boats that we did receive uh through the VU program were uh airboats. It took a couple of days for VP to get us airboats, but they did because we wanted to get into the marsh to make sure we were able to identify where oil was and where oil wasn't as quickly as possible. So not the most agile. We, we had to pull some areas. We had to uh, actually get out of the boats in some spots, things like that to move things around. Uh, and, and that was principle. Um, soon after, by the time we got our, our hands on things, by the end of 2010, there were there were always safety officers, but we started to have safety meetings. We started to have safety conversations understand what was happening, what was going on.
0: So, what, so what are some of your memories of, of the area that you particularly worked in? Did you, was there like a lot of oil all over the, the coastline? Was there oil everywhere or was it only sort of small pockets? How, how did it how did you sort of find it? The, the oil leaves
1: the, 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 the spill, leaves the rig, and it travels generally together. But once it gets near the coastline, it's kind of hard to imagine, but there are some pictures that you could see of like the oil comes so far in a group And then where it actually oils the shore, the last 15, 20 feet in that surf zone, in that tidal zone of of just constant motion, you're never really sure where it's going to hit the beach. So you'll see many, many pictures of uh, um, um, just, there's a big area that's completely open, no concern, no oil, no oiling impact at all, immediately to the left, immediately to the right, there could be 30 to 50 gallons of oil just plopped on an area of um, 100 square feet. It was very random. And that that's where the data came together. That's where our work our work was to assess what it was. If an area was an impacted, I was just as happy, let's assess this. Let's identify what it is. We know exactly we're on this point on this day and we took pictures. There's no oil here. Someone else will find that other oil. They'll find it via an aerial. They'll find it via a near shore oiling plant. Someone else will find it go to your points find your points get your data absolutely defensible data because again this is a litigation project always and then what what happens happens we'll, we'll, we'll find what's going on. We're just here to assess what's happening so it was um, um, not so much a challenge but it was a conversation that happened a lot especially with the new person coming on and, and it was like they like hey there goes the oil as you're traveling past it. So just pick your location. Follow your location, do what you have to do, collect your data, and that—that and that was our job. That—that's what we did. So.
0: This is this which happens a lot in sampling. It, there's the human sort of bias where we want to take, you want to try and get a positive sample. But I can see what you're saying. If if you were to go out and just take samples of oil everywhere, on paper it would look like the whole area was just coated in oil. Where because of the randomness, because of how much, how well spaced these sort of impacts are, you need to get more of a, a a geostatistical representation of that is that. Is that I'm understanding you right? It, it, that's it exactly. Because the
1: complexity of the actual deposition, again, it, that last 10 feet has traveled dozens of miles, but the last 10 feet is the complete unknown of where it actually <laughs> deposits itself is the randomness. And and that's um, um, the second part of it. Though was a temporal component is most important. And and that's really Louisiana or the marsh areas, some of the marsh areas of Mississippi, especially. Uh, the beaches, the beaches are, can be assessed in a generic perspective. The marsh is so complex that you'd have areas where an oiling would come in and hit an area. Um, small islands. There was there was one Pelican Island that 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 I had went to, that only a part of it was was damaged. But as soon as that oil came in, because of the type of oil as the crude was, it was very heavy. Uh, it, it had a high adhesion and it was very viscous, so it would stay. Trapped onto the vegetation. Ultimately, it was almost a guarantee, highly confident that that would kill the vegetation. But once it killed the vegetation of the marsh, that area eroded right away. So the island that I mentioned, I only know it because just by chance, just by uh, the work plan that I was working on from one to another, the island was there in 2010 and it was oiled about 40 to 50 percent from memory. When I went back in late 2011, I believe it was, the island was completely gone. It had, because half of it had eroded away, and once that erosion cycle, if you imagine this is the, the uh, ocean, the, the, the gulf moving up against it, once the erosion cycle started, it just engulfed the island, and it was completely gone. Because we say it's an island. It truly is an island for a pelican, but it's at an elevation of maybe 1.5 feet above sea level. It, it gets overturned. It, it, it gets swamped. Once we killed the vegetation with the oil, though, it it was gone. and That was a temporal effect, and that really needed to be known because, again, an area that we investigated in 2010 that wasn't oiled, it might have survived, but it doesn't mean it wasn't eroded.
0: So it sounds like there are not only short-term impacts from oil oil spills, the physical damage the oil does, but the much longer-term effects it has, as you're saying, the disruption it causes to... Uh, coastal ecosystems through destruction of um, grasslands and other much-needed environments. Um, It it sort of moves into a little bit what people are talking about, how marshlands and and mangroves and uh, grassland areas are are so important for preserving our coastal properties. How then did you decide what um, the impact, the true impacts were of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill events. Was, were you just looking for those initial impacts or were you looking at the longer term damage caused?
1: No, it, it really is to, to amend a little bit of what you said, that um, the short-term impacts potentially are, are, are the greatest on the individual species that are out there. Um, the, the oysters, uh, possibly, um, they it was both the impact on the oyster and then the impact on the uh, uh, Trying to deal with the spill affected the oysters in both ways. But those were short-term and relative and, and uh, resources. Um, uh, damage restoration could deal with that. The longer term is really, it, it does highlight as an example. And the Louisiana coastline, is the delta is unique in its own environment, but, but it, it is a good snapshot of what any coastal wetlands are. You damage them in one area. The, the damage isn't specifically the area it's then what erosional changes uh so imagine a just conceptually a, a blanket of oil comes over some area in north carolina and drops on one 100 square foot area i would believe strongly that given four five ten years that 100 square foot area had eroded out and become maybe a thousand square feet uh it's it's not impossible to easily see a eight to tenfold increase because you've damaged what was integral and and, um, actually uh, uh, codependent on one grass blade versus another grass blade. But once you damage it, it it quickly starts to um, escalate. And then that hundred square feet has a 10 foot shoreline that becomes 12 foot shoreline that becomes 40 foot shoreline of impacts over time. So it's uh, um, a cycle. It really needs to be assessed both from short term and long
0: term. something we spoke about in a a previous episode but it was talking about the natural resource damage assessment which is essentially what was being done by yourselves working with um noah and other parties to to look at how what the effects of the source was um when you're doing this sort of natural resource damage assessment what is it what is the important things to get right when you're working on the ground when you're sampling when you are in the field
1: that's an excellent question um the the first thing that i believe and and this is potentially where my experience came in is no matter what every natural resource damage assessment natural resource damage project is a litigation project it's a legal project so data consistency was absolutely critical uh, from the very beginning for for all the teams and and we continue to stress that uh it, it was um an advantage that I have, again, from working with databases—not um, to the level of your other, my other colleagues, uh, Jacob and and Mike Wild and doctor Rouhani, Rani—but understanding that everyone needed to record things as clearly as possible, as consistently as possible, because you never want to make changes, especially in a litigation case where someone is putting the wrong latitude and longitude. Minor change. It gets corrected, but it's those corrections both take time and a, and a possibility of an error. So it's data consistency. Understand what's going on and, and what you have. That was our that and safety are two mantras. So everyone knew what was occurring and what was happening. There, the second part though is then actually going forward. How do you understand what's going on? And, and in my experience, there's really three critical elements. It's one: a is where did this stuff come from and who did the damage what what actually happened and then 1b is what is the damage it's immediate as, as we're talking about um, question number two is what was the environment like what is the actual quality of the environment before it was damaged like I could walk up right now anyone could walk up you can see pictures of oil on the beach oil that that, that that hit an area but if that area was just a, a openly dredged uh, beach that happened to feed to a, a, a ship channel or, or something that has a high velocity, it's not a large impact. But if the area is loaded with seagrass, it's pristine, the impact is actually much, much different. And um, you only know damage at first, but you don't know long-term impacts. So you need to characterize what is the initial quality of the area what are the resources in the area before the damage hit? And then the third thing is, is temporal, is understanding over time. What is the, the, the time frame and predictions of time frame moving forward? So each one of these concepts involves some generic modeling or, or a, a conceptual model. You have to explain it for, for what's occurring. But collecting that data that's legally defensible, legally um, uh, solid and then using the data in a consistent manner and understanding what's going on, and then presenting what will happen in the future to get the area restored are the they are large tasks. But but that's our goal. That that's what NERDA is.
0: Just uh, um, assess it,
1: understand it, and then we'll restore
0: it later. But Dave, in a in a previous episode, we talked a lot about metadata, um, which is the the data associated with a sample that isn't necessarily just geochemical numbers and, and, and figures. Um, what's your take on match study? What is the importance of, of good data collection?
1: Oh, it's absolutely critical. Uh, and uh, we were fortunate that, that NOAA had experience. They they had some programs to, to, that started with. One of the things was a picture tracker. Um, pictures are worth 10,000 words to, to, to me. And we started with our program uh, for the forensics and, and it followed through. So, things like um, uh, every field team, obviously, they'd have their cleaning equipment and their gloves and their safety equipment, but they'd all were issued. Soon on, I, I think it was say by July, uh, everyone was issued the same camera to work with. So, we, we, and I'm sorry, not the same camera, we all had the same Olympus camera. So, everyone was creating the same quality of, of photograph and, and they had everyone was given a generally the same gps unit because your location is absolutely critical and then we went to where uh, where we initially started with the forensics was we kept field books we soon got off field books when we went to waterproof field sheets and then after one mistake or two we learned that we needed to make the field sheets large enough to where they could be scanned and so that you could go from at least get some data in there quickly that scanning had to be confirmed and and so that put the the actual package together we'd have when someone would arrive they'd take a location so you'd snap it with your gps then you'd actually take a picture of the gps that unfortunately was a wasted picture until the six or nine or ten samples where the gps was either lost or we lost location or someone forgot to save it that was absolutely critical that kind of metadata comes together so we'd have a name for what that photo was and noah took it and then both worked with the photos to actually label them. And ultimately, it wasn't long, but by um, uh, July, uh, each one of the teams would have a daily intake. So as soon as you got off the water, you went through your safety checks, you got your gear together, you labeled your samples, you had everything, and you'd pass it over to another team that would take your samples, but they'd also take your data and your metadata. And they'd look through it, and they'd confirm everything is generally there. We'd Because it's legal, we were never allowed to delete or change anything, but someone would see it. So you'd realize, oh, I held my finger down and I had 20 photos. You could easily just label wasted photos. They were never deleted, they were just wasted photos. So as you'd go through, they weren't understood. Or uh, one GPS point was taken 22 times because somebody happened to lean on the button too many times. It happens. Well, you just quickly label those as unnecessary. And rather than when the Dr. Rouhani's in the world would get the data. It was like, oh, we went here 22 times. That must be a bad point. No, it just happened to be a random mistake on a boat that happens every day. So um, that was very quickly. And, and these little stories was when we had training programs, people would understand. It was like, don't consider it a mistake. It just happened. It's, it's OK. Don't delete anything. Don't change anything. But when we define the metadata, when, when the other teams would define the metadata, it, it made it quickly usable rather
0: than wasting time or wasting space. Let's take it on to um, looking at how uh, the experience in new fields, what, what we did, can inform uh, more modern-day marine oil skills. So at the moment, while we're recording this, in fact, there's the news about the um, oil tank off uh, Venezuela, which has got the potential to leak a lot of oil uh, into, the, into the coast there. Also, a few months ago, we had an oil tanker off the coast of Mauritius also leaking oil um, into a marine ecosystem. What would you say are the key learning, key lessons from Deepwater Horizon that should be taken on board by the teams now responding to, to these modern day and future um, oil spills?
1: I, I think, as much as um, it, it's, it's not a major change, But again, my my three questions, what is the impact now? What was the quality before it was impacted? And what's going to be the long-term temporal, the long-term effects? What, because of the volume, the the sheer size of the uh, BP spill and the number of biota that were affected, there's a lot of techniques, uh, just uh, um, the modeling techniques. They're they're more an understanding, an investigative investigative tool to understand, um, um, is it really in a a negative effect on this material or how long does it take to degrade or what happens or what, what we could do to restore. I'm just giving a lot of generalities, but it's just understanding those three things as much as possible and understanding what you can. So moving forward for those areas, um, what one of the first things they should be trying to get both the localized, what the environmental quality is for the shoreline and, and, and what's being impacted. Um, one of the quickest things is a beachfront. I mentioned, you know, beaches beach, Beaches are a wonderful thing, but they're generally consistent, at least for a large area, half a mile, three-quarters of a mile, a mile, so that if there's a spill onto the beach, you could easily work an area a few hundred feet away, a few thousand feet away, and say, this is the impact of, this is what the area would look like as environmental quality before there might have been some possible impact. Uh, however, if it's into some other shoreline or a craggly shoreline or, or something um, that, that's much more diverse, uh, uh, especially like the uh, Mississippi Delta area where it's, it's just random. Um, if the oil impacts that, uh, then you need to take a, a deeper look because it might actually impact the shoreline in, in one consistent zone, impact the shoreline to a larger zone, or even just follow a channel and and, and hit something inside a channel in a isolated areas so your area is smaller but then it's what was that channel what was the quality of that channel because by my definition it's already different than the rest of shoreline that that had something unique to it and if it was oiling over top of some seagrass then it was the the damage is much much higher because they're a little incubator for for biologic activity however <laughs> then the other side if the channel was uh, something it's Uses a channel, but it's also been impacted by just anthropogenic. Uh, uh, there, there's chemical plants discharge legally, uh, some controlled amount of water, some controlled amount of wastewater, stormwater, stormwater from residential developments. That channel may, it's definitely not as pristine as having just pristine seagrass in it. So that all needs to be defined, and, and how you define it and, and how you actually evaluate it, and then the geospatial and statistical evaluation. Once again, you do need the boots on the ground. Someone needs to go out and take the samples, take the photos, take the locations, understand what it is. But the techniques long term to predict what was happening in the past, and what's happening in the future. Those have been not so much refined, but they, they've been uh, developed and, and discussed and evaluated and torn apart and retorn apart and moving forward. Uh, um, uh, there'll be a lot of potential for a look back on the restoration projects. Did the restoration work? How do we characterize it first? How did it work going backwards? So, Nerda, the process is moving forward, but it's still simply boots on the ground and answer the three questions
0: in a consistent and safe manner. Well, Dave, thank you very much. Is there any final comments from you regarding uh, the, the work you did? Definitely,
1: I, I hope to say a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I was... Uh, uh, not only with my knowledge of the area, I'd done natural resource damage assessment work and litigation settlements before 2010, and I'm still working on them now uh, after uh, the, the deep water, but it was uh, eye-opening. Um, but unfortunately, things happen. As you mentioned, was uh, some of the things ongoing right now, and we've worked at other places in the world, uh, I've been very fortunate with Newfields to uh, um, work, work on others as, as needed. But um, um, I enjoy it
0: as it was and uh, enjoy the work. So uh, thank you. Thank you for your time. So that's the end of this episode. Thank you very much for joining me. My thanks to David for speaking with me today and giving us fantastic insight on oil spill management. Next episode, we're going to be looking at the final part of this four-part series regarding the Deepwater Horizon which is the forensic chemistry used by Newfields to determine the actual ownership of oil deposits throughout the Gulf of Mexico. For more information about this podcast or anything about Newfields consultancy, you can visit our website at www.newfields.com or alternatively you you can email me directly at rwilliams at newfields.com. I hope you'll join me again soon and thank you very much for listening. Bye for now.